Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. Each week I'll be talking to some incredible guests and I hope by hearing each episode they will offer you a valuable source of inspiration and insight. From incredible life stories to a variety of important subjects, all to help you with your quest to change your relationship with alcohol. All of my guests are at different points in their journeys and each of them have powerful and uplifting stories and information to share. I hope you enjoy the show. Don't forget to subscribe and of course, leave a review. What do you do if you finally stop drinking and then you find yourself overeating instead? I mean, there's no going cold turkey with food, right? Well, I'll tell you what to do. Get hold of Coach Helen Bennett straight away. I've partnered up with Helen because she's worked with some of my clients and my listeners who cannot recommend her enough. I'd suggest that you start by watching her Food Freedom Foundations Masterclass in which she goes deep into how she helps her clients stop compulsive overeating. The Masterclass is currently free and it includes bonus training in which she teaches you a tool that you can begin practicing immediately. And that will help you to begin to eat only when you're hungry and stop when you're full. You can find the masterclass at helenbennett.co forward slash food freedom. I'll put the link in the show notes. Oh, and I nearly forgot. Helen is currently offering all of my listeners 10% off all of her courses and coaching programs. So if you watch the masterclass and decide that you'd like to work with her, then let her know that I sent you and she make sure that you get a 10% discount. Right then, let's get on with the show. And today's very special guest is a good friend of mine who has been with me right from the beginning of my sober journey. He has his own podcast called Sober Motivation, and he himself is a motivation to thousands of people all around the world. So please welcome my good friend, Brad McLeod. <laughs> So hello Brad, welcome to my podcast One for the Road. I'm so, so honoured that you're on as a guest today. We've been talking for a long time now, but when I first got sober, I started exploring social media and used to pop up all the time, Brad McLeod. It's like, oh my God, this man's a legend. And you are. And we become friends, although we're across the pond from each other. Um, and I'm just so grateful you joined me today because your story is incredible mate so thank you so much of course sober dave thank you so much for having me and yeah i guess we'll find out and see uh see how incredible it is well it is incredible mate um so should we get straight in there and let's wind it back to the beginning what it was like for you growing up where you grew up and go from there yeah for sure yeah i mean i was born in canada ontario and my mom was a single mom um, she was 16 at the time. She had twins. I have a twin brother. Wow. Yeah. So she had a lot of responsibility right out of the gate. And I, I mean, me, um, I couldn't imagine that, right? Like having twins at 16. It was, I, when I was 16, it was hard to really, really hard for me to look after myself. My dad really wasn't around much. Yeah. I mean, they were young too. Right. So that, that threw a little wrench in it, but we live with my grandparents. So we lived in my grandparents place, a five bedroom house. My, my grandmother did the home daycare. So she was always around, really good with us and, and a lot of attention, right? Grandparents, a lot of attention you get, you know, usually 
kind of get what you want. Not all the time, but probably more frequently than from my mom. So she was going back to school. So I spent a lot of time with my grandparents and she went back to school. She went to finish high school, went to, to college to be a nurse. So then when she went to be a nurse, they were really hiring a lot of jobs in the US. And, and I think I, I think that she wanted a little bit of freedom from like living with her parents and kind of a new start, right? So we actually moved when I was about six years old, we moved all the way to Texas. So that was a that was a big transition. And when I look back, that's kind of when things when I really started to feel out of place in the world. That was really when I was really uncomfortable, really anxious. I mean, we went from a very secure living environment, right? Everything was looked after. There was a lot of stimulation. There was other people to play with. It was it was really what I, what we knew. We had a lot of family around and a, and a lot of things like that. And then went to this like completely foreign place. And then it was just my mom looking after us, right? Which was was tough, right? When you start out in your nursing career, you're working evenings and you know sleep during the day and babysitters and all that stuff. I, I just I wasn't used to it. That's a real culture shock, isn't it? Six years old, well, any age really, isn't it? To move countries, different environment, left your friends behind, start again. Yeah, it was a lot. Yeah, and then going to school. A lot of people too around that age, they'd already maybe done kindergarten and they they knew each other, and there was relationships, right? So six, seven, eight. It was really hard to get connected, right? Yeah, I mean, the culture like definitely is different. I mean, it's not like massively different, but it was different, right? Not a lot of people understood like Canada. You know, it's kind of like this this foreign place. Like you came from another planet and and yeah. just touched on here, right? So how did you fit in then when you went to school? I don't think I ever fit in after that for a long time. And how did that impact on you when you reached 10, 11, 12. Yeah. I mean, I always, it was around that time too. I started seeing a lot of like psychiatrists, psychologists, doctors, every, because I was really behavioral, like a huge behavioral problem. I never got, was interested in school, in schoolwork. I couldn't pay attention. I couldn't focus. So it was, it was around that time too. I'm learning more and more. There was a lot of, you know, young boys specifically that it was just the behaviors were out of control, right? So they had this um, medication, ADHD medication, Adderall, Ritalin. And um, that was, I, I was put on different medications like that. So I could try to, you know, follow the rules because I was just, I had a really hard time doing that. Um, and I, when I look back, I mean, I was just looking to be noticed. And to get noticed, I had to, I had to go to the extremes. I would never get recognized for doing well in school, right? Because school is just, is just pushed on us to just do well in school, do well in school. Hey, if you got a 90, stand up. If you did an 80, stand up, you know, get a praise from your peers. I never did well ever. I don't even know if I passed the test, to be honest with you, until I got to college. So I just felt like I was on the outside of those conversations. And in your peers, all you also connect based on your, you know, how well you're doing in the academics, right? And I was just so embarrassed. Like, why can't I? And that went through my entire school life is just like, why can't I just get this stuff? And I never, I never was interested. I never read any of the books. I never did homework, like maybe once or twice or a few times. My parents would, would force me. But then that also caused a lot of friction at home because your parents want you to do well, right? Because you do well in school, then you get a good job and you live a stress-free life and you have a family and you buy a house and you know, you're, you're, yeah. my parents wanted that for me and I just never got it. It doesn't work out like that. So was it you, your mom and your twin brother then? Yeah, it was my yeah my mom, my twin brother, and then my mom met my stepdad too in Texas. They used to work at the at the hospital there. So my stepdad came into the picture, 
probably around that age. I should know this, Dave, but I don't know the exact mm. exact thing. But I would say probably about like nine, ten. So you felt like a loner. This is really resonating with me, actually. I was a little bit older, but my school went out the window. I, I just wasn't interested. I lost interest in life, I think. You know, I was on a different planet myself. That's before I started drinking. You know, I started getting into trouble. I remember I tripped up the PE teacher. I was just in the corridor and he, he was a big man as well. And he walked past me and I stuck my foot out and he went absolutely flying. And he grabbed me by my ear and dragged me into the headmistress's office. But she had a little bit of a soft spot for me because I was a cheeky chappy. And she go, she said to me, oh, go on, get out of here kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? I got away with it. But it was all attention seeking because I felt so alone, so isolated. You know, I didn't really fit in. Same, Dave. I didn't. I didn't trip the principal, but I did many, many things, or the the teacher, but I did many things over the years that when I, you know, at the time I had no idea. Like I really yeah. had no idea about what was what was going on or what was happening. I never talked to anybody about it. Like I would All go right. and see therapists and doctors and, you know, I used to go to learning centers too. I mean, I hated it, Dave. I hated it. I would go to school all day and my folks would have me signed up to go to this learning center and you'd go in this cubicle and they would just like, so quiet. And they would, I would just, I couldn't wait to have to use the washroom, Dave. I couldn't wait. And I could just get up and move. And it was like, I was in, in, and it's funny you mentioned it too there because like this stuff before drinking and before drugs, I mean, I was, I was already struggling big, big time. I had other, I had things I would do to escape before I found like the home run or what I thought would be, you know, exactly that. Yeah. And the thing is when nine, 10, 11, is slightly different from when you start hitting the teens, right? Because most people I talk to on this podcast, they say 13, 14, they started to drink and take drugs. How was that for you? How old were you when you started dabbling with that? Yeah, I didn't start until after high school, actually. There's a few reasons probably for that. I, uh, I got wrapped up in some crime. So I got wrapped up in some crime. And when I was 16... I got caught with a couple of the buddies. We were going into garages and helping ourselves to people's stuff. And we got busted for this. We lived in a small, we lived in a small town. At this time, I'm living in North Carolina. So we made the move. We're living in this up and coming suburb. It's called Apex, the peak of good living. And I mean, it's rated like probably top 10 US cities of oldest cities. So it was a really like suburb type place and um, heavily policed, heavily policed place. So I got caught for this and I got put on, I got charged with a couple felony charges and I got put on probation man. in the state of North Carolina. When you're 16, you're, you're an, you're an adult in, in the legal system. So I got booked into the County jail and I thought I was going to change my life right then and there, Dave. And the reason for that was I got booked into this jail and they, they take you and they do your fingerprints and, and everything. And then they put you in this holding cell and there's this, uh, this fella, he's probably 18, 19. And he's just crying, crying. And he's on the phone and he's like, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And he's, he's must be talking to his mom or something. And then he cut called a, an attorney and I kind of broke the jailhouse cardinal rule. Cause I had no idea about this stuff, but I asked the fella like, what, you know, what are you in here for? Well, I was like, why is he so upset? And, um, he had mentioned that he had been, been booked in for, for killing his girlfriend. And right in that moment in New York City, and then he was taking the trains down to Florida. And right in that moment, Dave, I had this like this this 
weird, warm thing go over my body of like, what have I gotten myself into? Like a little bit of horseplay, a little bit of like acting like a, a teenager, a little bit of peer pressure, a little bit of acceptance. How did I end up here where I'm in like the big house downtown, nine stories? I mean, it's just terrifying the place. And I got out of there. My parents bailed me out, obviously. And I got out and I thought for sure, like, you know, that's, you know, I had my fun. It's all done now. Just lasted for a couple of days though. So that happened. I got put on a felony probation and I had this probation officer. I mean, she was tough as an iron. She was so strict. Um, she used to come to the school with her sidearm. You know, she'd have her pistol on her belt and her jacket said probation on the back and yellow writing, sit outside the classroom door, make sure I was going to class. But they used to drug test me. So they used to drug test me. Somebody would watch you. So there's no really way of fooling it. Plus, I really wasn't a, a quote unquote cool kid. So I wasn't invited to the parties or my folks didn't drink. Well, they did drink, but I never saw them drink or, or, or drunk or anything like that. So I just really wasn't around it. So that was probably the delay. And then I had mental health stuff go on. So I ended up in the psych ward twice for thoughts of suicide. I talked with my school counselor about the police came and brought me to the, the hospital and I stayed there for a couple of days. And, and all through high school, it was just, it was just a mess. I had other I had codependent relationships too. Which were just, I mean, it was a dumpster fire, Dave. It was just poured gasoline on the fire because I couldn't stand on my own. So my life and my emotions would be just dictated by other people. And it wasn't a healthy, you know, it was, we, were just, we were just kids, right? Like we didn't know, you know, I don't think anybody had any, you know, ill intentions, but we just didn't know, right? We got wrapped up in that and it was, it was bad. How old was you there? That was 16 when all that started. And then, and then things went downhill. Things went downhill after that. And then the second time I ended up in the psychiatric hospital, my parents were wanting me to get some help, like treatment and not for addiction, but for behavioral health, behavioral mental health. Like, cause I was destroying the home. I was running away. I was failing out of school. I was in trouble with the law. I wasn't following the rules at the house. I was getting suspended from school. Well, you name it. It, it was, it was part of, it was part of the journey. So they had this guy come in. He said, yeah, we've got this three-month program, Brad. We can, it's like 90 minutes from your house. You can come here and you can come for just a couple months and, you know, get things straightened out. We'll get you back on your feet, get you feeling good and back into the world and, you know, do some, do some good out there. And I was like, yeah, okay. It ain't happening. I'm, I'm, there's nothing wrong with me, which is wild thinking back, Dave, that uh, everything was so chaotic and I was still in the denial that I was going to figure, I, I thought in my mind that this would all just blow over. You know, it would just switch up. One day, it would all just switch up and all make sense. And I would move on with my life and be a doctor or a lawyer or something. So then my parents came up with this other intervention. They were going to send me forci forcibly to this other facility. So I woke up one day and there was this guy who was kicking the, the bed in the hospital, the metal bed. He's kicking on it like seven in the morning. And I kind of, I didn't have my glasses on. So I saw this guy to the corner of my eye, a big guy. And the, mostly the people who worked there in the, the hospital, you know, nurses, right? So I said, man, this is something's up. Something's up here. This guy said, yeah, your parents have hired us to take you to a rehab program. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm not going to the rehab program. And they were like, no, here's the paperwork and stuff. You, you, you know, you really don't have a choice. You have to go to the program. So I packed it up. I packed up my stuff and. This was a private security company, transport company that my, my folks had hired to bring me to this program that I didn't know anything about. And um, the only thing I ever knew how to do up to that point in my life was run. 
Yeah. I couldn't face any problems. And as soon as we started heading down to the parking garage to, to jump in their, their car, I was already planning my escape. So they were driving. We were driving on I, uh, I-95 headed to Knoxville, Tennessee, right outside of Knoxville, Tennessee, the place called Peninsula Village. And I told the fella, I, I got it. And there was another lady there too driving. I told him, I said, I got to use the washroom. I got to go to the bathroom. So we stopped and I just told myself like, this is just it, right? You're going to, you're going to split. And he was holding the back of my shorts. I had a pair of basketball shorts on. He's holding the back of my shorts. And um, I just had this thought impulse. I was just so impulsive. I couldn't stop. And I just split. I just ran. You know, I was on the run for a couple of hours, but due to the history of the, the, the suicidal thoughts and being in the hospital, they put, they put the whole force showed up, the whole police force around there, state troopers, sheriffs, local police. Uh, everybody. And within a couple hours, they'd, they'd pick me up. The police did. I couldn't run anymore. I ran through an entire beehive. The adrenaline was running. I went through this beehive and I got stung so many times. And it was just, it was probably hundred degrees that day. And that's kind of when I had this feeling, I actually opened up for the first time in my entire life, 17 years old, sitting in the back of this security car. No more Mr. Nice Guy after that either, Dave. They threw handcuffs on me, the security detail, but I, I broke down. I was just like, I don't know how my life has gotten here. Like it kind of slapped me in the face. I don't know how I ended up here. So yeah, that's kind of leading up to about that's 17 when I when I went there, Peninsula Village. That's the story already, mate. But I can see how it happens. It's a domino effect, isn't it? It just collapses around you sometimes. So back of the car, you broke down. What happened then? Then I got to Peninsula Village after about a, six hours from there. So this place here was a lockdown unit. So you, I spent three months in a lockdown. It was the basement of a cafeteria, chicken wire on the windows, big steel door. Sta the staff working there had buzzers around their neck if they were, and they would restrain you if you didn't follow the rules. So they'd press this buzzer. It would light up the whole campus, big horn, more staff would come running down. And that's all I saw for three months was that basement. You never got, you never left. And um, it was very strict rules. No talking, sit on your bed all day, raise your hand if you, if you need something. And there were consequences. We used to do chores. We did a couple groups per day. I had a one hour family therapy session on the telephone with my folks, but those were the first couple were cut short because I just wanted to get out of there. See, I'd always manipulated my, my, my parents, my mom, especially like my stepdad was more stern. He's a military background and, and, and had that, that stuff. But I think he would be more to enforce the rule. But my mom, I, I could always kind of weave and wiggle until now the weaving and the wiggling was done. And, and yeah. mom, mama put her foot down and said, I don't care what it's like. Yeah. You, you have to stay. So I was, I was pissed off, you know, I mean, I was upset, really upset by it. And I, you know, felt like I was just left out to dry, man. I didn't do anything for months. I just felt sorry for myself. I just stayed stuck. I did the bare minimum. I was in denial, didn't realize that I was the problem. It was everything else. It was this person, that person, that situation. Poor me. And then one day, this fellow that worked there, his name's Mr. Riddle. Mr. Riddle. Before I would ask a question, Dave, I'd raise my hand and I, they might call on you. They might not. You might not get, you might not get that and ask a question for a day. But when he would call on me, I would have to say the 12 steps from one to 12 to a T. If I didn't get it right, sit back down, try again later or maybe tomorrow. Um, so I'll never forget the fella because that was what I remember him by. But then I remember him by another thing too, is he told me 
Because a lot of people came into the, they would call it stew, the special treatment unit. A lot of fellas came in there, but then they would leave like a month later. And they they had a cabin program where you went outside and they did live in these cabins in a small group and stuff. And I just wasn't buying in. So he told me, he told me this, that he said, Brad, and they never got personal with you. Never really talked to you or, you know, they're not there to be your buddies or anything like that. But he kind of let his guard down a little bit this one day. And he said, Brad, if you're going to do anything here, you got to fake it till you make it. And I was like, oh, yeah, whatever, dude. <laughs> you know, whatever. I said, eventually my parents will, they'll see that this isn't going to work and they'll just pull me out of here. But I let that sit for a couple of days and I, for a couple of days it sunk in. And I said, you know what? Like, let's see what, you know, this this guy, who's a smart guy, really smart guy. Um, I said, let's see what this guy's talking about, you know, because my way, like, look where I am. You know, I tried my best and look where I'm at. This is ridiculous. I started doing everything that was asked. I whether I wanted to or not, I did everything. I participated. I I I woke up with a smile. I pretended to be happy. I did everything I had to do. And within a month, I was I was out in the cabin program, and I was there for a year. So what started off as three months? She was there a year. Yeah, it was a year. Just three months in the special treatment unit, and then I went to the cabin program for for the rest of the time. So did that change things for you on that program, or did you just do your time there and? Do what they ask for the rest of that time. Yeah, no, good, great question, Dave. No, I mean it did. It definitely did change a lot. It yeah. changed a lot. Um, I reached a level there. They did level systems. You work through it. So you start out as a pre mouse, and then you're a mouse, and then you're a bear, and then you get an eagle, and then you can get a buffalo if you come back. Um, but I ended up reaching the level of an eagle, which maybe only one other person per year would ever do that. So, like, definitely accomplished accomplished a lot. And the whole idea behind the eagle too was like the bigger picture, being able to see it, you know, and I never saw that in the beginning. It was just like the mouse, right? You, you, the mouse is all about themselves. They can't, you can't see far. Mm. Um, you can't see really past your whiskers. You don't have any trust. You have to like work your way up. And um, it was an incredible transformation from like, you know, day one to, you know, 364 or <laughs> whatever it was. Right. But it was incredible, but it, I may, I you know I made changes when I got into that program. I graduated high school. I was phenomenally connected with my parents. Um, I I got accepted into college as soon after I got out of the program. I got my first job. I started college. I got my first apartment. Um, I start. I I connected with this old friend, not one of the toxic girlfriends. This 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 girl was just incredible. Connected with her. Um, we started seeing each other. Um, I was going to therapy. I was going to recovery groups. I was doing everything um, after that program for a couple months. And then thing, I started to do it my way again. You know, I mean, that's kind of a long story short. I knew what was best for me and I stopped going to therapy. I stopped doing my medications. I stopped going to my recovery groups. I, I started to invite people. I started to lower my boundaries. I started to invite people into my life that like I wouldn't say it was it was bad at first, but it, it ended up that way, you know? And and then I got into the drugs and I got into the drinking. And once I found that, buddy, see, I had found a bit of peace in my life from the chaos throughout that treatment program. The thing was, Dave, I had to work really daggone hard at it. And then when I got into drinking and drugs, like it only cost five bucks. You know, you could buy it at a supermarket or buy it on the from a buddy and five dollars provided, you know, a decent relief. You know, and I didn't know about addiction. I didn't know about dependency or addiction or or withdrawal symptoms or I know it sounds really naive, but I had no idea, man, that what was going to happen. It's fascinating, mate. I could talk to you for hours about that subject because 
you know, you went back to what you were used to, like chaos throughout your upbringing, moving, that place, coming out, going straight for a couple of months felt too hard to sustain. So you go, you go even further back to chaos. Do you know what I mean? And how did that manifest then? Like bringing in the wrong people, I can relate to that. At the time, they felt like the right people. You know, these these were my saviors. Like, oh, my God, they're laughing at everything I'm saying and I'm getting drunk and it's making me feel good. It's giving me confidence and stuff like that. And my life felt super good at the time. Do you know what I mean? But it just spiraled. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah, it was good because we were partying all the time. I knew this one guy and he was connected with it. He knew everybody. And we would go to parties every night. Mm. And, and it, wasn't, it wasn't a disaster right from the beginning. That's definitely not my story. Yeah. I was hooked from the beginning. I was hooked, but it was good. Like we were, we were hanging out. We were partying. We used to have people over at the, cause then after a while into this, the girl, uh, incredible girlfriend, a really good person that I was, I was seeing, she moved out of the apartment. This is ridiculous. So then I moved my, my buddy moved in, you know, wow. my buddy moved in and, and we were just partying and I didn't start to lose stuff right away. But the big part is um, we were playing poker one night. And a buddy of mine, he was, he had a pill bottle and he was taking one of these till took out the pill bottle. And I said, Hey, if you got a headache or something, we can put the chips away and you can, you can run your chips next time we play. No problem. We, whatever, you know, you can just go home, you know, to stay. He said, Oh no, this isn't Tylenol. This is the, uh, Percocet. I said, Oh, well, what the heck does that do? Oh man, it makes you feel good. That's all I need to hear, Dave. As I, I said, how much is it? Okay. And that's when I was introduced to the prescription pills. So the Percocet, oxycodone, I mean, the entry level stuff. And um, man, once I, once I had that first pill, I, I just, I was just on cloud nine, man. Every insecurity, all the uncomfortableness in my skin and my, my skin crawling, every, every doubt I had, every negative thought about myself, you know, every failure I ever had, every lost relationship, you know, everything, but it just went out the window, man. And I was like, you know, where's this, where's this been my whole life? And I could never get enough after that point. And that's when, that's about 2000, so it was about 2007, 2008, when these pills were just hitting the streets in, in America and in everywhere. And we had no idea at the time, right? We were all being sold this big dream that this stuff was not addictive. And now I didn't have a prescription for it. Like I, I never did, but they were everywhere, Dave. I mean, I had a buddy and this would never happen today. I had a buddy, his dad would probably get about $5,000 street value of these medications dropped in his mailbox. Like that's how bananas it was. And like not even be home, they could just be sitting there. Like, and so we were all, once I found the guys that were doing it, that were plugged in, it was just a daily, you know, and I was, and I started doing cocaine too. I started doing cocaine too. So, I mean, it was, those are like the big things for me, the drinking, the, the pills and the cocaine. Did you have a job? Yeah, I had a job. Yeah, I used to work at my first job was at a Burger King. And and you know, the one of the stories about the Burger King was I had a younger brother too at this time. And um my younger brother, I went to his kindergarten graduation. And I was all like, I don't think I was messed up at the graduation, but I was probably hung over or something. And um they asked him like what he wanted to do with his life, my younger brother. And he, he said he wanted to be like me and work at Burger King. And I was like, that was kind of one of the first times where I was like, if they only knew, you know what I mean? If they only knew, nobody would want to be like me. It was sad, right? It was like, shit, you got this 
young fellow looking up to you and like, you know, you're not somebody that people should look up to. Yeah. That's sad. I can, I can really feel that when you say that. Yeah. So you were holding down a job. Yeah. I used to work at another place too. Red Robin burger, gourmet burger place worked in the, the kitchen. Yeah. I was like my thing, like, like kitchen work, you know, it was, it was infested with drugs and booze and everything too. Right. So obviously that just continued to spiral, right? You start on all that and it just goes wild, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I did. And then I I had other stuff, you know, I got to a point where I just didn't really care what it was. So then I found myself doing a little bit of Xanax too, but I was getting, you know, the Xanax too, I blacked out. And one time I, I blacked out and, and I don't, it's so hard to even explain. The only way to put the pieces together is to have other people tell you. So this is what people told me from the story is that I blacked out and I got to work at this job. And when I was at work, I did a pretty good job until I got really bad into the cocaine because I would do cocaine while I worked the job and I'd have to go out to the bathroom and stuff. That's a whole nother story. But I got the I got into the Xanax and I blacked out and I showed up to work and I was like out of my mind. And then they were like, you can't stay. You have to go home, but you can't drive home because you're out of your mind. But I drove home anyway. And it was like, man, what the heck is going on? But it didn't, it's just wild looking back, Dave, that, man, for me, I just had so many situations where like, I probably shouldn't be around. Mm. And it's like, why the heck, like how, what the heck happened, man? And even other times with impaired driving, you know, which is like, it's just, there's no, there's no excuse for it, but it was just like, I would black out and it didn't happen all the time. But, you know, you wake up wondering like, what's going on? But you don't, but the thing, the way I drum it up, I wanted to stop so bad. I just couldn't stop. And I know for some people that might be hard to wrap their head around, but like anytime I would pick up stuff from the drug dealer, you know, pick up alcohol from the store, man. I mean, there wasn't a bone and or a thought in my body that, really wanted to carry on but i just couldn't stop just blacking out life all the time just just like a zombie almost isn't it zombie yeah. state of living yeah and it's embarrassing for me it was embarrassing too because i wouldn't just black out and stay home like i would hang out with people i remember one time i went out to a, to a mexican restaurant with some people and it was just a disaster i mean just uh, recalling it back i'm just like i I was I was ashamed of 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 that stuff, you know, for people because they don't know what's going on. The other people with me, they didn't know. I really didn't know. You know, it's like, man, I got to I had to figure it out. And then when I turned 18, uh, I got arrested again. I got arrested again. A buddy of mine, buddy and buddy and I are breaking into a car. Well, not breaking into it. We went into a car. He did. And I learned about guilty by association. So he was there. I was the lookout. Doesn't matter. You both did it. You're both guilty. So the car, I see the blue lights come up. It's like three in the morning, Dave. We're in this little small town, blue light. I see two cruisers, boom, chargers, like the new ones at the time. And I was like, oh, we got to go. So we split. We're in the woods. We're running for like 45 minutes. And I'm like, oh, we're probably good. So we get to this pool. A lot of the complex uh, housing complexes there have these pools. And then at the pool, they have an emergency phone. We didn't have any cell phones or anything. They had an emergency phone. So I called this, uh, my girlfriend at the time. I said, you got to come pick us up, right? Don't ask too many questions. Like she knew things weren't good. And she came to pick us up. We were almost out of this town, Dave, and the lights turn on, you know? Woo woo. And I'm like, oh man, like we're screwed, right? So we get arrested. That's a felony um, in North Carolina. And we got arrested that night, booked into jail. My brother bails me out the next day, I think $5,000 or something. And then 
or bails me on that day. And I go home. I'm living at my parents' place at this time. Oh, I forgot to mention, I got kicked out of school. I got put on ac- academic probation and then kicked out. My parents' money they gave me for college, gone. I got evicted from the apartment. The, the girlfriend left. I lost jobs. I was unemployable. Everything was a complete disaster. My parents had bought me a new car. They gave me $15,000 for this new car. I lost the car. Police took the car. That was another thing I was ashamed of. Just to, you know, my grandfather, before he passed, he used to call me the million dollar man. And it probably wasn't exactly a million, but just the amount of of finances for interventions that my folks and my loved ones had spent over the years. So I get arrested that night. They forgot to put one of the charges on the books. So the cop shows up at my parents' place the next morning, 7 a.m. My younger brother's getting ready for school. My stepdad's there. Um, In my parents' house, it's like two stories of the entryway. And then there's like a staircase that goes in the middle. So if you're up on the second floor, you can can see down in the entryway. My stepdad comes and knocks on the door. And I thought that was kind of strange. And he said, there's somebody here for you. It's the cops. And I'm like, oh, God. Okay. I'm like, it can't be that bad. This is cool. Keep it cool. Keep it cool. No big deal. He didn't know I just got out of jail the night before. He's like, you're under arrest and stuff, you know, for last night. And I'm like, oh man. And my younger brother's right there. And they're like, put me in handcuffs. And I saw the look on my stepdad's face. And I was like, you know, I was living there. I had nowhere else to live, but I just knew I was never welcome to live there again, mm. you know? Mm. So yeah, that was heavy, man. So I did I did that, you know, and then I ended up getting on probation for that too. This time, Dave, I'll tell you something that I still don't have an answer to. They didn't drug test me this time I was on probation. That wasn't part of the conditions. Wow. Yeah. So the party kept going, man. How long did it go on for, Brad? When I was about, what, 21, 22. So I, I ended up living on my brother's floor in his apartment. So... He gave me a place that I jumped around from friends to friends, to girlfriends, to girlfriends, places. And, and then I landed on my brother's floor. He had a roommate and I, I slept on the couch sometimes, but if he had people over, it was rather embarrassing to have your, your brother who, you know, I used to kind of be somebody, you know, like I was kind of somebody. I was never like a famous person, but like people enjoyed hanging out with me. I think when we used to party and stuff before the bottom fell out, it was a good time. Mm-hmm. I think so anyway. So, it was really embarrassing to like go from that to, you know, like the shape I was in. So I woke up one morning, then I was on, I, I got into heroin, dude. I got into heroin too. So that's where it transitioned for me and all the boys, right? The pills dried up. The government was like, oh, pills, the pills are, everyone's hooked on them. So let's pull them back. Then we all went to the streets. We could, you know, spend less money and, and, and get more, more stuff. Right. So that's what we did. And um, this got out of control. Just like the rest of it did. So I was living on his floor, man. And it was, it was about that 21, 22. I woke up one more. My life was just to paint a big picture too. Everything was just a mess, man. I wasn't working. I had no car. I was not in school. I wasn't doing anything. We were, I would just, my only goal in the day, Dave, when I woke up was to get 20, was to get $15 in my pocket. If I had $15, I could get a 24 Keystone light, 24 beer. And I could go over to Food Lion and get my 24 beer and I could get two packs of cigarettes, buy one, get one free menthols. When they first came out, Marlboro menthols, they used to have a free pack attached. So I could do that and I could sit by the pool and I could find a few buddies who would join me and and see what we could get up to. Yeah. The faster I could get outside of myself, the better. And to do it with somebody else was a bonus, but I didn't, I also didn't have a problem doing it by myself. So I woke up on that morning 
and the sun was kind of shining in through the the shades, right? You have those little holes where the the little string goes. Yeah. It's hitting me in the eye, man. And it, and there's so much more to the story, but to paint a picture for this part is I had this weird thought of like, hey, why don't you try to get sober? Like your life is shit. And I was like, yeah, kind of had this internal dialogue with myself, like you know. And I kind of really got honest, like you're gonna die. It's not gonna be a good story. You know, that's going to be a reality because I just went 110 every day. I just didn't care what was in my way. I just couldn't live with myself or live with what I saw in the mirror. So I said, yeah, that's, that." you know, I'm talking to myself here, right? Not like out loud, but in my thoughts. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. But like, I don't know how to do that. But I gave it a little bit more attention. And I had this other thought. It was like, just call somebody, get some help. So I called my grandparents all the way up in Canada. I said, look, guys, I got to get off the drugs and stuff. They had no idea. I hadn't seen them in years. I was too embarrassed. They drove down like two days later. They came and picked me up in North Carolina. They had um, arranged for me to go to a detox in South Florida. And like they're 60, 60s, probably 70. It's a long drive, probably a day drive. And um, they arranged for me to go to this place. I went to this detox and um, it was great, man. It was great. It was seven days, right? It's never long enough for most of us to do anything in seven days. But then, so I got off everything, man, cold turkey. And it was like, it was a long seven days. It was, it was, it was rough, but that was sort of the beginning. That was like the seed planted of like, Hey, you got to do something. I didn't get sober then. I didn't, didn't turn it all around, you know, to end the story that good. But I moved back up with my grandparents because I knew the police were looking for me. They were calling me all the time, Dave, you got to, what would they say? You have a, you have to sign for this package. You have a package to sign for. And I was like, God, whoever this is, trust me, nobody's sending me packages. I don't know anybody to send packages. And they were doing all kinds of uh, tactics. And I was just kind of laying low, not on purpose, but just because I didn't have any resources or a job or a car or anything. But it's really weird how things play out when they're supposed to. Because during that time when I did have active warrants, I got pulled over by a sheriff. One time I was headed to the methadone clinic and there's a fork in the road and I was flustered because this sheriff was right on my on my tail and I swerved over at the last second and the sheriff pulls me over and I'm, in, I'm, I'm driving my girlfriend's grandmother's car and she pulls me over and she's like, are you lost? And I was like, no, no, I just was confused about the signs and everything. And she's like, do you have your driver's license? I said, oh yeah, I have it. She's like, whose vehicle is this? I said, it's my girlfriend's grandmother's car. She just lets me borrow it from time to time. The thing is, Dave, if she would have ran my information then, that would have been it. And I was in a really, really bad spot then. I was in a really bad spot. And that that could have really changed the entire course of everything. And I had another interaction with police where they didn't, run run my name they just looked at me like oh you know the, the guy looks like a great guy you know like, <laughs> so my grandparents came to my brother's place one morning after i got out of the detox a couple of days later they're like it's crazy here like the cops are at your parents place and we think you should come up to canada with us and and live live there and i was opposed to the idea because i had friends and i had spent like majority of my life there in carolina but I said, you know what? Like, let's do it. Let's check it out. Right. So I went up there. And now the thing is, I got off all the drugs. But I was still drinking every day when I went up there. So I mean, it was progress for a guy like me. That was massive progress. Um, and I started working his painting job. And I started wake, you know, I started doing that. I started showing up for a job and had a full time job and stuff like these were 
And it was really rough for the first couple months because I'm still going through all the withdrawals from all this. Like, I mean, the whole cocktail of stuff I was on. Mm. And it just like changed, you know, but I kind of just kept putting one foot in front of the other. I used to go to occasional meetings here, there, celebrate recovery. I used to go to AA groups, you know, I used to go to NA groups. I used to go to smart recovery groups and I seen a psychiatrist, you know, I was trying to get help. I just, you know, I was just taking it slow, I guess, you know, slowly heading to where I knew eventually I would land. And then I, on January 11th, 2010, I went back to visit my family. I'd reconnected with the old girlfriend. It was really good news. She's incredible. See my brother, see my friends and stuff. It had been about like nine, 10, 11 months, maybe a year I'd been up in Canada. So I said, you know what? Like things pretty stable. I'll go back for a visit. And um, when I got off the plane in North Carolina, well, at customs in, in Toronto, they asked me a million questions, Dave, million questions. And I said, this is weird. I should just go back. I had every, I had every thought, like I should just go back. And I didn't, I went through with it. And then when I got off the airplane in North Carolina, I got arrested. And that was those old warrants that had come back. And I got charged with um, three, three counts of drug trafficking, selling narcotics to an undercover police officer, like um, years, years prior. Well, they said they were waiting for you. They were waiting for oh me. Oh my God. <laughs> And and you were getting things on track as well. Yeah, trying. Oh my god, man, <laughs> that's awful. So so what happened? Yeah, so they uh, and this was kind of like a second sort of I call it a spiritual awakening in a sense to where I'm sitting. Um, I'm they they handcuff me. They bring me out to this this cough car. It's sitting out there in front of the airport there, and you know the airports have those little drive arounds where you you can't really park for long. You just kind of drive around until you see your person out of the corner of my eye. I mean, the timing couldn't have been more perfect. I saw this young lady that was coming to pick me up and just this look on her face was just smiling, grinning ear to ear, you know, excited for this day. I was excited too. And, um, man, I had this, this feeling come over me, buddy of like enough of the bullshit, like mm -hmm. enough of letting people down, you know, cause that's what I had done is just sold dreams to people. You know, it's enough of this crap. And I said, you know, and I kind of had this, this internal dialogue, like if you're going to want to make your life better, like you're going to have to clean up completely enough, enough is enough, man. Like there's enough of this stuff. And, um, yeah, that was it, buddy. That was, that was where it all began. You know, that's when I really put one foot in front of the other and it was really, it's crazy to say this dude, but it was probably the best thing that ever happened in my entire life. You know, the timing was right. Yeah. I was in a better place to kind of go through that to go through all that stuff, you know, and talking with the, the girl afterwards, you know, like she was, uh, she, so she parked a car, couldn't find me. Right. Parked a car and she went into the airport. I had a suitcase I was bringing, but they weren't going to have room for it at the jail. Like they don't, you know, it's not a storage facility. So they were like, I don't know, just leave it here. I said, like, whatever. Like, I don't really care what you do with it. So they left, they put it at like customer service at the airport and they were calling out over to the loudspeaker, like her name. And she was like, oh, well, you're going to, she's like, I thought you were going to be there. Like, couldn't find me. I couldn't find you. It was going to be like this, this happy ever after movie connection thing. And it was like to get the suitcase. You know what I mean? And I'm like, fuck. And, you know, that's the, it, it just hit, man, that it was like enough's enough, man. So I got a $250,000 bail. So I obviously wasn't getting out of jail. And I ended up going, I ended up spending a year in jail. That petrifies me, that whole subject of jail. Like, all my life, it's like, no, I, wa I watch prison films and I, I'm absolutely petrified. But 
did did that year like help you put things in perspective? Because I hear that quite a lot, you know, spending time. I don't recommend it, but I mean, I think it did. You know, I think I needed to 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 feel it. You know, I needed to miss the birthdays, the holidays, the good days, the bad days. I needed to see what that was like. I really needed a true feel for what I didn't want my life to look like. Mm. Because here I was, you know, you know, twenty years old, twenty something years old, and I already had. I was already convicted felon at 18. I couldn't get a job at McDonald's or Burger King or Bojangles or anywhere. They ask you if you're a felon, they check into it. You know, and here I was too with all this other stuff. You know, it's like I needed that ultimate accountability of like, hey, there's no like this is this is literally gonna be your life. Do you want that to be your life? And the answer was no. The answer was no every time. Um, but it was it definitely was helpful. You know, I plugged in and it's funny. It's funny you say that though about the the prison shows because uh, actually these other guys in the jail they used to love watching those prison shows. I'm like, why do you guys watch this crap? They used to love that stuff. But you know, I really used it to develop who I was as a person and who I wanted to be. It was my time to reinvent. It was my time to start to build a foundation to do more with my life. I, I honestly had no idea what that looked like. I just put one foot in front of the other every, you know, day after day after day. Was it just, do you think you were sick to death of living a life of chaos? Because from six years old to then, it sounds like a complete car crash. And when you say you had suicidal thoughts and you didn't want to be here anymore, and then all of a sudden you're like, I really need to do something with my life. What was it just the catalogue of events that got you to there? Or did you have like a spiritual intervention? What what was it do you think that happened? I it sort of came to this place of like, I didn't really want to live the way I was living anymore. And I didn't really want to die either, but kind of put me in a in a spot. I, I made a pat with myself. I made a deal with myself that I'll give this a solid try. If it doesn't work out, I'll go back to the other way. Here we are, baby. It worked out. Well, do you know what, Brad? The only reason I say that is because that's where I got to. In My, my life was nowhere as near chaotic as that. But I never compare because we've all got our own story, right? And my mm -hmm. life was chaotic for decades. And... It got to a place at 54 years old that I actually thought to myself, I could literally die any day from what I'm doing here. And, and that was enough for me to go, I've got a life here. Life is valuable. You know, you see people dying of cancer and stuff, and they there's nothing they can do about that. And for me, it's like I, I've got a choice here. I can choose how my life moves forward here. And, and it sounds like, that's what happened to you. It's like some kind of intervention happened in your mind that chose where you are now. Yeah, no, for sure. And, it, and I think the seed was planted long before I actually got to the place. It was probably planted like when I was 17. Mm. Uh, like you can do, you can do better. And I wonder if it's your little brother looking up at you as well that planted that seed as well, you know, like you feeling how you felt when he looked up at you and said, I, I want to be like Brad. And there was that sense of, yeah, I want to be like me, buddy. Like, yeah, you know, these little seeds go in, don't they? And you might not realize at the time, but they plant firmly 
And later on in life, you quite often look back and go, yeah, I, I was ready a long time before this has actually happened. And this is what gives hope to people. Hearing these kind of stories, it's like, you know, like your story, my story, all the other people, and you've got your amazing podcasts, which are live stories as well, and people resonate to them, don't they? Not quite all the same, but it's the hope people get from these stories that, blimey, like you you clawed your way back from all that to be the man you are now is incredible. So how did that look moving forward then for you? What did you do? What changed? Yeah, I mean, it was slow. It was a slow process. to. So after I got out of jail, the U.S. Marshals picked me up. I went to a bunch of different, bunch of different jails and stuff um, all over the eastern U.S., Atlanta and Tennessee. And so I got put in ICE, ICE um, Immigration and Customs Enforcement because I was a Canadian citizen and I only had a green card in the U.S. I wasn't actually a citizen. So after I got done with um, the jail time, the sentencing that the judge gave me, which was a whole nother incredible story. I got deported. So U.S. Marshals picked me up, brought me to the back of the Atlanta International Airport, and I got sent back to Canada, got a lifetime ban from the U.S. And um, it was the best day of my life. I was, uh, you know, I was, I was, I was headed home to eat a, a home cooked meal. But, you know, the craziest thing is my grandmother ordered this fish and chips. So I want you to picture eating like rice and like, low grade garbage for a year and then your grandmother beautiful as she is gets you fish and chips oh the stomach pain after that dave was just <laughs> unreal it was just unreal but i had to, you know what i feel like why it helped me so much is because the door for the past was dang near closed mm. there was no going back there was no wiggle room what i had known and what i had become was done that was over like it, it was it was completely done that's what i needed you know, I don't do well with halfway stuff. Yeah. I'm an all or nothing fella. And and, and and when I got in trouble that time, they went all or nothing. They went all the way. And it was great because I got a chance to start over and start yeah. to work on stuff. And I had set two goals when I was in jail. I wanted to be an addiction counselor and I wanted to get a German shepherd. And I, in both of them, I got accomplished. I, I was home for about a year and, and then I was, start, then I went back to school. I went back to college. Like who would have thought like, yeah. Never did college or did well before. I went back to college and um, I graduated to be an addiction counselor. And I started working at this treatment center for for youth. They were between 13 and like 19 or 20. And um, they used to live there. It was a residential program, six-month program. So I worked there. I got a job there. It was actually where I met my wife too. So I met her there. Um, I was doing a lot of volunteering. I was getting a lot of support. I was going to um, recovery groups, recovery meetings, connecting with other people. They were trying to like find my people, right? Like I wanted to find winners, not just anybody. I didn't just link up with anybody. Like I wanted to find people who were who were winning, whether they were sober or not. I wanted to find winners because mm. I wanted to learn. You know, that's what I did when I was in jail. Like I, I hung out with the older boys. We kick it. We would play chess. We chop it up about life. You know, it was none of the. It, sadly enough, Dave, it probably wouldn't have made it onto the 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 prison shows because it was rather boring. But it was good for me because I I just soaked everything up from these fellas, and I tried to do tried to kind of bring that to the you know to the outside world, right? And then I um, yeah, I got that job, and a couple years after that, man, I I bought a house, and now now I've got um, three beautiful children. I mean, who would have thought, right? Like it's, that's crazy. It's really crazy to me because that I never like when I was growing up, 
And even in my early twenties, dude, I never, I never thought of this stuff, man. Like me, like having anything, I, at the end, dude, I had like four or five pair of clothes and I used to wash my clothes in the, in the, um, kitchen sink because I didn't have a quarter or two for the laundromat, you know? And it was like, I never envisioned having anything. And I'm not like a huge materialistic type person, but you know, it's nice to be able to see some hard work pay off for people around you too. And just relationships and everything like that. Right. Just to get to place. I never, (laughs) dude, I still got to pinch myself, Dave. And I ain't got much. But what I do got, buddy, I'm so grateful for. Yeah, and you you help so many people. You know, as I said from the beginning, when I first started looking on Instagram, putting in sobriety, sober, recovery, up your pot. And I remember you had 35,000 followers and you was like a god to me, Brad. (laughs) (laughs) You was, mate. And I used to like listen to your lives and that and just think, God, this man is everything to me. You gave me hope. You know, you gave me inspiration. And, you know, you you do so much and it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And that's the good side of social media, isn't it? You know, like the support and the network and your groups and whatever. Does any of your past ever bite you on the arse or do you feel like you've dealt with it and moved on now? Well, no, I mean, I still struggle, not every day. You know, I mean, Mm. I'm still struggling. I wouldn't say I struggle to stay sober, but I do struggle with life. You know, being Mm. a father, having three kids, I mean, five, three and one year old and and, and being a husband and stuff and maintaining relationships and and running a business or, or four businesses and doing stuff. You know, I mean, there's, you know, you. St- I still sometimes feel like I'm not good enough, you know, but I'm just like, just do the best you can, man. Best you can with what you got and, and things will work out, you know, and all those situations in my life, I could go over more and more and more about the timing, you know? So it's really hard for me to question if things are not going well. There's been so many times in my life where the timing from the universe or whatever, boy, it lined up. Per, more perfect than I ever could have. I could have drawn it up, you know. So I do struggle. I just got belief in something bigger than me, man. That's you know. I'm just here playing my part, and think so. If I work hard now, I don't just lay in bed all day and expect things are going to happen for me because that's not going to work. Mm. But I know if I play my part and I show up and I do the best I can and I give back and I I try to help and I'm just trying to be a good person. I'll land. Exactly where I'm supposed to. Yeah, a hundred percent. And and we are so resilient. When we think about the scrapes, I always say to people that right at the beginning, they say, you know, I don't feel worthy enough of being here. Um, I've got no confidence. I hate myself and that. And I always try to sort of tap into that motivational skill of helping people feel enough, you know, just do today. And then get up again tomorrow and do the day again. And like always describe it like a house of cards you build and that. And in the beginning, it's easier to kick over, isn't it? But if you build one layer, two, three, four, five layers, you become more protective and you start to look in the mirror at yourself and go, I'm actually doing this. You know, I remember my first week, I couldn't go a day without drinking. 
Like, and I mean drinking. I mean a litre of vodka. You know, I couldn't imagine myself. Go, I used to play football and come home at 11 p.m. and think I've got till 12 to get drunk because I would never drink into the next day. It was a weird, unless I was out clubbing, but if I was in on my own, it was this weird timetable that I had. So I would drink and drink and drink till I was so drunk by midnight. It was an hour gap when I should have just gone to bed. You know, it's this weird. So for me to go one day, two day, three days a week, and then it was a month, it's like, I can't believe it. It's like celebrating 10 years a month was, you know. <laughs> gradually, bit by bit, I start to get my self-esteem back in that. And, and you know, I talk about when I was up that mountain recently in Morocco and that, and I looked up there and I thought, I didn't even doubt that I would get up there. And I think that was because of the life I'd had, the resilience I built up of actually, you can do anything now, mate, because you've got out of this hell that you was in. So you can do anything. So if I'm having a bad day, I just look at it as one of them days now. I don't like go on about it or think, do you know what? Everything's terrible. I just get on with it. And I go to bed and think tomorrow's going to be a better day. And it's the same ethos, how I live my life now. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love yeah. that. So before we go, Brad, and I'm so grateful, mate, that you shared that as a powerful story. Tell me about... Um, your podcast, what you're up to. Uh, I know yeah. where that podcast come from as well. <laughs> yeah. The Sober Motivation Podcast was inspired by by Sober Dave himself. Well, we had a little chat, didn't we? And you said, you know, you're thinking about doing it. I said, go for it, mate. Honestly, it's. do you find it helps you as well talking to people, hearing their stories? Yeah. I love it, man. I if I if there was a way to do it, Dave, where I could support my family, I would literally do podcasting all day, every day. I enjoy it that much, and it's so powerful. And it, it, there's never a day that goes by that I don't hear that it's helpful, even though I have a hard time believing it. Sometimes I don't know if that's something you can relate to. Yeah, but sometimes people send me this message. You know, I got one yesterday about you know this 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 fella, and he's like, without the podcast, you know, he might not be around. And I'm I'm thinking to myself, like, oh, I'm so grateful for that, but like. I'm like, I don't know if I, why am I having a hard time believing it? That yeah, it's that I'm helpful? the same. I know. You know. I don't know what it is. I do not know what it is, but I'm the same. I get loads of messages saying your podcast has literally saved me and whatever. And I'm thinking, well, I'm just having a conversation with people sharing their stories and that. And it's like, I think it's the impact it has, you know, like the hope it gives people, um, people relating to the stories and, giving them hope, you know, and, and, you know, you provide a tool for people like I do, you know, it's, it's part of the toolbox, cyber toolbox, you know, amongst yeah. the lit and the, the community and whatnot. And, you know, thing is, it's like, I'm going to do my audio book soon. And people these days like to listen to things. Yeah. You know, I'm terrible at reading. Like I'll read a line and then I'll have to go back to it. Not even a paragraph, a line. And it, not that kind of line, Brad. Let's not go down there. But, um, you know, I'm terrible, but I can listen to things. And I might be plodding about doing something indoors and I, I have my headphones on. It goes in. And I think this is why these podcasts are so powerful. Yeah, no, I think so, too. And, and just the flexibility you can have with it. You can have it, right? You can be cutting your grass, yeah. hitting the you know, or even having a shower. And you could put you could put a podcast on Sober Dave in the background. But, yeah, the podcast. The podcast has been incredible. I mean, it. I've been blown away. I mean, it's 
just so many people checking it out and, and so many people just being part of it and just having just lots of fun and people sharing it. Like one, I crossed paths with somebody, Dave, and they were part of an outpatient treatment program and they do Zoom meetings and somebody had mentioned about the podcast to them. They got on the podcast. They hopped on this Zoom support group I was doing. And I'm just like, how are you got like, how are you people hearing about this stuff? And it's just like, I don't know. I think if you just, I, I guess if you just do good work and you stay consistent, you know, people will find it. That's the hope, right? Yeah. You know, and you smash them out as well. I can see how you love them because your podcast has exploded and I'm just rattling my brain now to, to um, remember the guy from everyone loves Raymond. Um, the brother, oh, Garrett, Garrett, Brad Garrett, Brad Garrett. And, and you got him on, didn't you? And like, I love him so much. He's a legend, isn't he? Yeah. We've got to get him on yours now. We have. Um, he's a busy man though, isn't he? Yeah, he is, but yeah, it just yeah, they move a little different, right? They they just move a little different. We gotta we just have to move a little different sometimes too. But we we should we we can try to make it happen. I've got some really big guests too coming up this week. These two episodes, these two guests, Dave, I manifested before I started this show. I said, dude, if I'm gonna do a show, I want these two people. And and also Dane Cook might come on the show. I don't know if you're familiar with Dane Cook. Look him up after this. You will recognize him oh, from a ton of movies. Um, what is he? Have you ever watched Employee of the Month? No. Okay. Look him up. He might come on the show. But yeah, I manifested these two people because their stories are incredibly powerful. And it's just weird how it all kind of happens. But I don't know. We're just going on and on here, Dave. So oh, no, we, we, uh, we're zipping about it because we're chatting for another three hours and people are like, all right, we've heard your story. Get on. I've got work to do here. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> thank you so much, Brad. Uh, I'm going to put all your details in the show notes, including your wonderful podcast. Keep on doing what you're doing, man, because you're fantastic. Thank you so much. Thanks, Dave. I really hope you enjoyed the show today. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For further support, you can buy my book, One for the Road on Amazon, and you can also follow me on Instagram at SoberDave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. Until then, thanks for listening and have a great week.